Welcome to Sure Foundation Lutheran Church's podcast channel. If you'd like more content like this, visit us on our website at www.surechurch.com. The following sermon was preached on November 28th, 2021 on the basis of Jeremiah 33 verses 14 to 16. Grace and mercy and peace are yours from our God who gives unshakable grace, mercy, and peace. Amen. How many times do you have to have problems with something before you finally just give up on it? I'm sure you all probably have a story about something that you probably bore with longer than you you should have. I know I probably have stories like that too, but instead I'm going to tell you a story about a friend of mine this morning. A friend of mine who inherited a very respectable used car from his his grandma. This car was only six or seven years old. It it had hardly any miles on it because his grandma only used it to drive to the grocery store or the doctor's office. He was excited to receive it. Um, He was very thankful and grateful to his grandma that, that she included that in her will to give that to him. And it, it was important to her grandma, to his grandma, that he be the one who received that vehicle. But that thing had so many problems. It, it had problem after problem, unrelenting problems. Even though it was free for him, he put thousands of dollars into that car. It had so many repairs that it needed. And at some point, at some point, He finally had to ask himself, how much more am I willing to bear with this car before I finally just give up on it altogether? Maybe maybe some of you have had a similar car experience. It's not just cars that frustrate us in this way. Maybe you have other possessions that do not function as they're supposed to. Or they keep malfunctioning and you keep bearing with it because that's very important to you, but it never lives up to what it was supposed to do. And that's, that's disappointing and, and frustrating. And it's not just that way with possessions either. Maybe there is someone in your life who have you, you have continually put your trust in and they have repeatedly let you down again and again and again. And you bear with it and you're patient, but they keep letting you, you down. And so the question is, if that frustration persists, If those problems persist, how long are you willing to bear with something like that? Over the the course of of history, if we looked at things from God's perspective, how long do you think God should have bore with his, his people? If you saw from God's perspective centuries and centuries worth of of sin and disobedience, it it wouldn't take too long for you to come to the conclusion that God should have forsaken and given up on his people a, a long time ago. Why would God have even bore with that much disobedience? It's a question you may ask yourself as you read through the Old Testament because there is there is no group of people that this is more clear in than in the, the Israelites. 
the Israelites again and again disobeyed God. And, and there would be times, if you're reading the, the Bible from cover to cover, there would be times in, in the, the history of the Israelites when it finally seemed like, yes, they're getting it together. They finally learned their, their lesson and, and they're going to obey what God commands. They're going to put their trust in God and it's all going to be good. And those times are quickly followed by falling back into old patterns of sin and coming up with new and improved ways to sin and, and disobey God. And let me give you an example. You rem may remember the time in Israelite history when they were in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. This was an, an awful time for the Israelites. Because this wasn't slavery in the sense of just working for someone else. This was harsh labor. They were treated very poorly in Egypt. And so poorly that they cried out for deliverance from God. And God gave it to them. In ten remarkable plagues that brought great destruction on the Egyptians, God forced Pharaoh's hand. Pharaoh was the leader of the Egyptians at the time, and he had been refusing to let the Israelites go, but on account of these ten destructive plagues sent on the Egyptians, Pharaoh finally relented and let the Israelites go. And as the Israelites left, even when Pharaoh changed his mind and chased after them, God, in miraculous fashion, split the waters of the Red Sea in two and let the, let the Israelites cross on dry ground and escape the, the Egyptians who were chasing them. God provided this great deliverance. And as you're reading through that, you think, okay, now's the time. They're out of the oppression in Egypt. Now's the time when they can be faithful to God, they can obey his commands, and they can live as a community of believers, even in the wilderness there. But you know how that story goes. It's not too long when they're in the wilderness after escaping Egypt, that they start complaining. Complaining about all sorts of things. Complaining about the food that God had given them. Complaining about God in general. Even going so far as to say, we wish we were back in Egypt because at least we had food there. Just when it seemed like maybe the Israelites would have an opportunity to, to finally obey God's commands and put their trust in Him, they persisted in their sin and, and their distrust in God. And if that weren't enough, just a little bit further on in the Israelite story, they had sent 12 spies to go into this promised land, the land that God had promised to give to the Israelites. And they had sent these 12 spies in there to, to, to try to see what, what that land looked like and what their enemies in this promised land would have looked like. And their conclusion when they came back was 10 of them said, we can't do this, that there's no way we can do this, we can't take these, these people, they will overpower us, we, we should not try to take the promised land. Even after God had promised them the land, and even after God had given them this great deliverance from Egypt, uh, Egypt who was much stronger than any people that lived in the promised land at that time. And the Israelites had the opportunity to obey God's commands and put their trust in him, but they persisted in their, in their sin and in their lack of trust in, in God. Let me give you another example. A little bit further in, in Israelite history, not too much further, 
Uh, the Israelites had made it into the, the promised land, and they were going to take their very first city. It was the well-fortified city of Jericho. And, and by all human means, this would be a difficult city to take, but God had given them commands. He had said, march around the city, just, just holding your trumpet, once per day for six days. And, and so they did it. And they said, on the seventh day, Blow those trumpets and march around that city seven times and I will give you the city of Jericho. It was an unusual battle technique. But they obeyed. They put great trust in God and they did exactly what he said. For, for the six days they marched around the city once and on the seventh day they blew their trumpets, marched around the city seven times and God gave them the city of, of Jericho. And at that time it seemed like they were going to do it. They, they, they put their trust in God for this miraculous victory. They, they trusted his commands and they obeyed them. <clears throat> but you read a couple years later and you hear about another instance of disobedience against God from a man named Achan. From this city of Jericho, they were supposed to dedicate the whole thing to the Lord. It was supposed to be like their offering to, to God. They, they weren't supposed to take anything from the city for themselves, but the whole thing was to be burned and dedicated to the Lord. But Achan and, and some of his family members, they took things from the city of Jericho and, and once again showed that the Israelites were going to persist in their sin and their lack of trust in God. Let me give you one more Bible example from the Israelites, and we're going to fast forward quite a bit for this one, to the time period of, of Jeremiah, to the time period of the divided, fractured kingdom of Israel. The once united kingdom of Israel had fractured into two, to the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And both kingdoms had lots of, of kings, and the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had all wicked kings. There was not one king who followed the way of the Lord in Israel. They were all wicked. They all went their own path and they did what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord and they were destined for destruction. But the southern kingdom, on the other hand, in, in Judah, they had mostly wicked kings, but they had some kings that made you think they might just turn it around. Kings like Asa or Hezekiah or Josiah, they made you think there might be a little bit of hope for Judah at least. But they didn't turn it around. They didn't turn back to the Lord, but they continued to, to spiral down their, their path of, of wickedness. And God brought the fractured uh, nation of Israel and Judah to destruction, to, to punishment. And they were carried off into exile. Just when the Israelites thought that, just when we would think that the Israelites were getting it together, they would come unraveled, spiritually speaking. They would fall back into old patterns of sin, invent new ways to sin, and they were deserving of God's punishment for that sin, as, as are we. If we were to look at our lives from God's perspective, what, what would he see? He would probably see the, the thousands, if not millions of times that we have promised that we would not commit that sin again. And only to see us break our word and in turn, break God's heart. From God's perspective, 
he, he would see times where we maybe have gotten rid of a sin that had been troubling us, a pet sin. We had gotten rid of it altogether. We hadn't committed that sin anymore, but only to grab on to new patterns of, of sin, only to hold on to, to new pet sins in our life and, and to, to not get rid of sin at all, but to, to find new ways to disobey God. God really should have given up on us a long time ago because no matter how hard we, we tried to avoid sin, we, we keep sinning. No matter how hard we try to be better, we aren't. We know what God wants. We, we know what God what, what is pleasing to God. We even maybe want to do those things, and yet we still find ourselves falling back into old patterns of sin or inventing new ways of disobeying God. God should have given up on us a long time ago. And he would have every right to. But he didn't. Just like he didn't give up on on Judah. And so we hear the words from, from Jeremiah when he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made with the people of Israel and Jerusalem. At this point... In Jeremiah, God has been patient for a long time. He has bore with people for thousands of years. And yet, despite everything, he reinforces his promise to fulfill his good promise. This was a promise to bring restoration to the people. It was the promise to, to bring the righteous branch that come from David's line. This once great line of David that stood like a towering, beautiful tree had been cut down. Years of disobedience against God, years of not trusting in God, had reduced this, this great tree of the kingly line of David to a stump that was dormant and, and altogether dead. But God's good promise that he promises his people is that from this seemingly lifeless stump of David's kingly line, this righteous branch would come to bring life, come to restore. This righteous branch that would come from David's line would be truly human because he came from the truly human line of King David But he wouldn't be like the kings from David's line in the past. David had lots of kings that came from his line who were all, who mostly were wicked and and did wicked things in the eyes of the Lord. But Jeremiah says this king will be different. He says he will do what is just and right in the land. He, He won't be wicked. He will be just. He will do what is right. He will be perfect. Obviously a promise about Jesus. This is Jeremiah looking forward to the time when Jesus would come and he would do what is just and right in the land. Jesus is the righteous branch that would come from the stump of David and would restore the the kingly greatness to David's line, but a heavenly king, not not an earthly king. He would take this, this seemingly forsaken stump of David's line and bring restoration in his coming. The arrival of Jesus in humility, uh, in the humility of the stable, being born of the virgin, marked the persistence of God's promise. 
God could have given up on his people a long time ago. He did not need to bear with and be patient with his people for as long as he has. He had no reason to be patient with us and to bear with us as long as he did. But this marked the persistence of his promise to forgive us. God's promises hold true. And the grace that God intended to give was unshakable grace. Years and years worth of the Israelites' sin, years and years worth of your sin could not negate God's grace for you. In fact, it was for that very reason. Because of your sin, because of the Israelites' sin, because of everybody's sin, that God sent Jesus in the first place. That God persisted in his promise because he wanted to save people who desperately needed saving like you and like me. And what that means for us is made abundantly clear in the last verse of our, our reading from Isaiah, verse 16. So I really want us to focus in on that. And I'm going to read it again for us here. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. Now we've got to unpack that verse a little bit because you hear that verse and, and you think, that's great. That's great for Judah. It's great for Jerusalem, but what does that mean for, what does that mean for us? There, there's a pretty simple answer to that question that maybe comes in, in two parts. Part number one is this. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, it, an unmistakable fact that you're going to take from the Bible is that God intends to save all people. That, that God does not intend to exclude anybody, but he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and so he certainly is not going to contradict himself here. And here's point number two. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, when, when the, the nation of Judah or, or the city of Jerusalem is referenced, they're talking about just that, the nation of Judah or, or the city of Jerusalem. But other times in the Bible, God uses terms like Judah and Jerusalem to talk about those who have been brought into Judah, who have been brought into Jerusalem by faith. This is not unheard of in the Bible. Later in, in Galatians, Paul will talk about how you are sons of Abraham, not because your descendant is Abraham, not because you have any blood relation to Abraham, but you are sons of Abraham through faith, and in a similar, similar way, you have been brought into the promise of Judah and the promise of Jerusalem through faith. And so God's promise, although here Jeremiah is giving it to the, the, the Jewish people, that promise is good for you, too. The, the promise of the Savior who will bring restoration. The promise of the Savior who will be, bring safety in his wings and, and and forgive all of your, your sins. But that's not even the main point of what I wanted to, to point out here. Look very closely at verse 16. Because we want to know who Jeremiah, or the Lord through Jeremiah, is calling the Lord our righteous Savior. Because he says this. This is the name which it will be called. Who or what is the it referencing. When you hear the Lord our righteous Savior, you, you immediately jump to the fact, well, he's talking about Jesus here. But, but if he was talking about Jesus, he would use the pronoun he, not it. He uses the word it because the it references Jerusalem. 
He's saying, this is the name by which Jerusalem will be called. The Lord, our righteous Savior. Or another way to say it is, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, he's not saying that Jerusalem or God's people needs to be their own Savior. That's not consistent with anything that we see in Scripture. But what he is, what he is saying here is the work that Jesus came to do for you, the, the saving work that he came to do for you, changes what you will be called. It changes your very identity. You no longer bear your own sins, but Jesus bore those for you. And it, in it, its place, God sees Jesus. Your identity is rooted in Jesus. You're no longer seen by God as a persistent sinner, an idolater, adulterer, a liar, a cheater, a thief, or an addict. You are known as the Lord, our righteousness. You bear Christ's Name And you are righteous because that's what Christ made you to be. And so he is giving you identity language here. He's saying, you, Jerusalem, God's people, you are called by the Lord's name, the Lord our righteous Savior, the Lord our righteousness. As we focus on the incarnation uh, this, this Christmas season, it, it may not look like much to most people. In fact, to, to a casual observer of, of Christmas, they would say it's probably rather unfortunate that a baby would have to be born in a stable and, and laid in a feeding trough. But, but for a believer, for you, Judah and Jerusalem, this is the fulfillment of God's good promise given all the way back in Isaiah. This is the fulfillment of God's good promise for you, where we see so clearly God's unshakable grace in the, mar- in, in the face of our disobedience, and where we see God's clear and, uh, clear and, per- uh, and persistent uh, intent to save. God, God grant that that be our, the hope that we rest our, our hearts in this, this Advent season that Jesus came to save us, he has changed our identity, and that we have a God of unshakable grace. Years of disobedience could not negate his grace for us. Amen.